What if you could have a film critic, film festival director, film publicist, and fellow filmmaker guide you with your film's PR and marketing journey from pre-production to post? I'm Kevin Sampson, and my online course, PR for the Indie Filmmaker, does just that. In this course, I'm going to teach you how to set up your film to engage an audience and build a community long before you call action. I'll show you how to approach critics to make them aware of your film like publicists do. And as a director of two film festivals, I won't just teach you hacks and secrets to reduce entry fees, but how you can use the festival circuit to create buzz around your film. I'm a huge supporter of diverse storytelling and film, and I believe the most unique voices come from indie filmmakers. That's who I've supported over the years with my show, Picture Lock, whether on TV or on radio. With as much experience as I've had as an independent filmmaker myself, critic, publicist, and festival director, I realize that most indie filmmakers just need access to the knowledge that big firms provide to achieve success. So in this course, I'm going to demystify some of the process and give you everything I know and a behind the scenes look at the sides of the business you don't always see. So if you're an indie filmmaker that's looking to change the game with your film's PR and marketing, make sure you check out PR for the Indie Filmmaker. Head on over to PRForTheIndieFilmmaker.com and get a free preview of the course, PR for the Indie Filmmaker. Get your film seen, build community, and become an army of one. It's Picture Lock on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Welcome to another episode of the world-famous award-winning show. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, filmmaker, film festival director, film critic, film publicist, and lover of film and TV. You can find all the back episodes and so much more at PictureLockShow.com. I've been gone for a little bit. I was doing a lot of traveling, so much traveling that it, I wasn't able to get a show up last week. But I'm here and... Today I'll talk with Jesse Atlas, director, co-writer of Let Them Die Like Lovers, an emotionally charged thriller about a soldier who jumps from body to body to complete missions and the toll it takes on her. Plus, I've got your answers to your favorite holiday films. And that's all ahead on Picture Lock. Hey, Ron Newcomb here with the Ford Studios. My go-to Christmas film is definitely a Christmas story, a must-watch for all. All right. Merry Christmas, everyone. You're listening to Picture Lock. I am Kevin Sampson, and in the emotionally charged sci-fi thriller film, Let Them Die Like Lovers, a soldier jumps from body to body, but her hardest mission is coming home. I have the co-writer, director, Jesse Atlas on the line. Jesse, welcome to Picture Lock. Hey, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Man, it's my pleasure. First question I always start out with, Jesse, when did you first fall in love with film? Uh, I mean, it, it probably was uh, a, a rainy day in summer camp in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn, where um, we were taken to the movie theater and I had to make the hardest decision of my eight-year-old life, which is whether I was going to go see Karate Kid or Ghostbusters. And wow. the camp was kind of split into two. <laughs> And all the kids were, you know, had different opinions. And it was like, which, you know, which of your friends are you going to follow? And whose opinion are you going to trust more? And, you know, thankfully I got to see both of them because we had a second rainy day the next day. But, uh, 
was my that was uh, that was one of my first um, early experiences of you know really being in love with film, and then you know for a while I I didn't really pursue it professionally actually until um, I was 29 or 30. I was doing theater until then, and um, you know something shifted in me where I felt like the feeling that I was chasing in trying to produce and create theater um, might be more easily attained in film. And and uh, there was a, a much larger canvas and a much broader way for me to reach people. So I just kind of moved into it. Um, and the journey was, you know, started with being an editor. Uh, and, you know, I, I had tried working on set. I felt pretty disconnected from the people who were making all the decisions when I was, you know, a PA and a runner. And I couldn't quite figure out exactly what department I wanted to be a part of, but once I uh, found some colleagues who were working in the editing room, I knew that that was where I wanted to be. So at the end of the day, it was, you know, all the chaos was gone and there wasn't too much stress and running around. And it was just you and the director and the producer and sometimes the writer. Um, just, you know, people quietly hammering out the story, um, you know, in a really intimate setting. And that worked really well for me. And that kind of gave me all of the basis that I needed to kind of train myself as a director and writer because I knew exactly what was making it into the film and what was winding up on the cutting room floor. That makes a lot of sense. Metaphorically, of course. I never actually cut on actual film, so I don't even know <laughs> why I said that metaphor. Like, I'm some old-school 70s guy. Uh, like, you know, yeah, never never happened. Right, never right, happened. right. Yeah. So, so okay, so, um, you know, you're, you're, you're definitely a director because you're jumping... You're jumping ahead. I have to go back to Karate Kid versus Ghostbusters and how you fall, <laughs> fell in love with him. I'm really interested in the fact that, you know, you, you did have a tough decision to make. I mean, Karate Kid versus Ghostbusters, as a kid, like, I, that would be a tough decision. But in that moment, um, I feel like what you're saying is something just sparked in you that said, wow, like, I'm really drawn to this art form in a way that you're just torn with inside. And so, yeah, I'm just kind of wondering, like, how was it the, the films that actually made you fall in love with, with film or was it the, the, the magic of cinema and how it could make you so torn in that moment? <laughs> That's a great question. I don't think that I was old enough to really know what the magic of film was, but I knew that there was something special about how excited all these kids were in making this decision. Right. You know, and this was, you know, this wasn't at a time where it was like, all right, well, if you miss it in the theater, like you'll see it two months, you know, two months later <laughs> on Amazon or Netflix. Right. You know, like if you don't see it now, all your friends are going to be talking about this for like the next six months. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and you don't, and you don't have the chance. And, and, you know, I never was really, I saw that same kind of excitement with kids, with my other friends, you know, when they were talking about sports. I never was too much of a sports head, um, so I never really followed anything like that. And then once the way the way that I saw people talking about movies, I was like, wow, this is great that people can get this excited about something and want to talk about it and want to share it and, you know, want their friends to experience it because it made them feel a certain way. You know, I probably didn't realize all of those things consciously at the time, but I think it was just a feeling. It was just a feeling that, that was created at the time, you know, and it was like, you know, and you chase those feelings. 
Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. You know, it, it's funny because I'm I'm listening to you. I'm getting tears in my eyes only because like I'm like, yes, you're telling my life story as well. Like I remember collecting baseball, basketball, football cards because boys did it back in the day. But like I really like I really didn't care about it unless I got somebody that like I saw on TV all the time. But I never had that same mm-hmm. excitement like when it came to talking about film. So I totally get it, man. Um, it, it is that magic of cinema. And at that age, you know, you don't necessarily know how to put it into words, but it's great when you can look back and you, you, you can connect the dots there. It's Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with co-writer, director of Let Them Die Like Lovers, Jesse Atlas. So Jesse, you did kind of talk about um, how you really started out as an editor. And I think, as we always say, you know, within film, you got three films. It's the one you write, the one you shoot, and then the one that you edit. And so you're really kind of like the the last leg, uh, the final person. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm interested in how some of that editing helped you as we cross into talking about let them die like lovers you know what were some of the nuggets that you brought in as an editor that said okay when I you know shoot my film this is these are some of the things that I want to do that's a great question um okay so yeah let's talk about a couple of those things I think (laughs) okay so coming up as an editor I was working with people who were coming up as directors and writers and people who are also experimenting with, you know, what their vision is and what they're trying to put on screen. And, you know, largely, um, these were successes um, in music videos and documentaries and commercials. But there certainly were a fair amount of moments where something just wasn't working on screen. And, you know, I, I would constantly communicate to the director I was working with, look, this is, this is not working. You know, what's the intention here? And they would tell me the intention. I would say, okay, you know, I totally understand the intention, but that's not, that's not what you have. That's not what you have here. That's not what you have in these shots. And so we have to be able to let go of that intention, either find a new way to use this material, or just let go of the idea of using this material in the way that you specifically intended, you know? So I think that, you know, and seeing these other artists kind of like, and seeing the emotional response that that would generate in somebody when they had to learn to let go of something or that something just didn't quite come out on screen the way that they had thought in their head. Um, you know, it was, it was an emotional process for them. And I kind of, you know, I watched that. I watched a lot of people go through that. And then when it, it came to being my turn, um, I knew that I was going to have to make peace with, with um, you know, kind of rewriting what I had in the edit. And luckily, as you said, you know, you're, you're writing the movie, then you're making the movie, then you're, then you're editing the movie. It's, you're, you're rewriting it three different times. Mm-hmm. So luckily I'm able to bring, you know, the same kind of clarity that I approach a writing revision with. I'm able to bring that kind of clarity to the editing room and say, okay, well, this was the intention in the script. I see how it's working here in front of me. And I understand that I'm going to need to let go and change it. And that's not to say, um, you know, that I was like failing in my vision. Like I actually, you know, was quite happy with what I wound up with um, on my own films in the editing room a lot of the time. But I was able to see that it could be even stronger if I could stay open and let go to some previous ideas that I was clinging to. And then, you know, and then the world just reopens in front of you and you're able to 
take a shot that was ended, you know, intended for the end of the film and put it at the beginning of the film and move things around and, you know, just, you know, just remain open to the idea that, like, it's not, it's not necessary just because it was shot or it's not, it's not valid. It, it, it might not be valid anymore just because it was in the script before you got the set and to just constantly be rethinking and realigning yourself with your goal. And if you have that strong goal, you know, before you get to the edit room, like it doesn't, it, it just opens your mind in a way that, in a way that if you just, you know, treated the edit as like an assembly of exactly what you shot, you might not get as, as much of a dynamic product, product, you know, if you're not still playing in the edit room. So, yeah. Um, so I, yeah. So that's that's something that I that I took with me from from my time working under other people and seeing the resistance to change mm. once things got into the edit room, and that resistance was something that I had to quickly put out of my head, both in the editing and and in the writing of things. It's it's funny, you know. I, I joke a lot about with uh, with my writing partner. You know, I direct solo and I write with a partner. My writing partner is Aaron Wolf. Every time we have a, a great idea and we're so excited about it and we're like, yeah, we're going to write this script, we're going to write this pilot, we're going to make this short, we're so excited about it and we, already, and we already know that there's going to be a sadness coming our way very soon because the original idea that we fall in love with, it's going to change and it's going to morph and it's going to grow and it's going to be even better than we ever thought it was going to be, but the original seed that got us so excited about in the first place, it's going to die. <laughs> and it's going to, and like, it should die. It should die quickly so it can grow into something else. But it's like, so even when we have like, you know, a groundbreaking, mind-bending concept, we're like, yeah, let's roll with that. You know, knowing full well that in four weeks, like that's going to have been pushed to the side because it's going to have shifted and grown. Hmm. You know, I, I really appreciate your honesty on that, because I, as I was thinking about it, you know, I can't wait to actually get behind the camera and direct something again, because it's been a while. But one thing that I've realized is, especially for me, like I'm one of those control freaks. And if I write, direct, produce, edit, like it's just too much. And I think what you said is absolutely accurate, because in that final stretch of making the film in the edit, you're, you never quite get, you know, what you initially intended. Or as you know, like when you got onto set and you weren't able to make that day or, you know, the sun wasn't in the right place. Like, you know, you have to kind of give up that initial idea. So I think going into it with, uh, hey, you know, this is what I'm intending to get across with this film, but I understand that there's going to be something that doesn't quite make it through. And I'm sure that there are those directors or, you know, there's different filmmakers um, that are able to get 100% of what they wanted to do. But I think you're so right that in order to let the product actually be bigger than you had imagined, you have to leave room for changes in the edit. And that, that right there, I think, was a huge, valuable information. 
All right, guys, I wanted to interrupt that interview with Jesse Atlas really quickly just so that I could give you the picture lot question of the week from last week. Picture lot question of the week last week was what's that one film that you have to see during the holidays? Hey, this is uh, Bill Coughlin of Tohu Bohu Productions and uh, Jabberwocky Audio Theater. Uh, the one movie I absolutely have to watch each holiday season is Die Hard, uh, hands down. I actually have a full-on Die Hard diorama I set up each year as part of the household Christmas decorations. That's sort of my version of a holiday crash. But uh, another film I've taken to adding into regular Yuletide rotations is Shane Black's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Now, Shane Black has a reputation for setting his films at Christmas, going all the way back to Lethal Weapon, but Kiss Kiss Bang Bang has the added advantage of mixing both Black's signature action comedy bass with a slew of neo-noir elements. I'm a big hard-boiled crime fan, both as a reader-slash-viewer and as a writer myself. So this one really hits a lot of my top enjoyment factors. Great performances from a pre-Iron Man Robert Downey Jr., uh, Val Kilmer, and Michelle Monaghan, a great detective story, and ultimately a feel-good resolution. Uh, all make for a perfect holiday season movie. Okay, so my wife just rolls her eyes at the idea, but I'm sticking with this recommendation. Uh, thanks so much, and happy holiday viewing. Big thanks to Ron and Bill for calling and Picture Lot Question of the Week this week. You guys got to help me settle this. Is Die Hard a Christmas film? Yes or no? Why or why not? Call 202-350-1351 and leave a 60-second or less voicemail or leave a comment via Picture Lock social media and I'll play it or read it on next week's show. Let's jump back into the interview with Jesse Atlas. It's Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with co-writer, director of Let Them Die Like Lovers, Jesse Atlas. Jesse, if we can dive into Let Them Die Like Lovers. Um, I had the pleasure of being able to see it at Tribeca this year, 2018, and I, I, it just felt like I had to do uh, a quick review of it. But if you could, let the audience know what the film is about in your own words. Sure. I mean, I try to keep it simple because it's a short film. It's only 15 minutes, so there's not too much that I, that I ever want to say about it without giving too much away. But you know, there's uh, the, the next level of counterterrorism programs in the U.S. Uh, you know, the extension of drone programs is a new covert CIA-run program in which a soldier is able to jump into another person's body to run missions, assassinations, ambushes, what have you, and jump back out and leave no trace of government involved. So the lead soldier, Alexa, that is recruited for this program, um, you know, is given a chance to take this magical trip where she's able to leave her own body. And as amazing as that experience is, it's also terrifying. And she has to balance um, her emotional landscape and her mental landscape while continuing to do this. And the movie takes a look at, you know, what the toll of these repeated jaunts out of your body and attempts to come home actually looks like over time. So kind of going back to that first question, I'm assuming that as a kid, the TV show that you had to make a choice over was Quantum Leap versus, well, maybe it's a movie, but Minor Minority Report. It kind of feels almost like it's a, a mixture between the two. Um, well, I appreciate those things because I hear people speaking of them very highly. I have actually never seen an episode of Quantum Leap. It was <laughs> mentioned to me after I made the film. Um, but... Sure, I definitely appreciate the similarities there. And then as far as Minority Report, uh, yes, yes, no, and maybe. I mean, there's 
I think Minority Report is, is a really solid film, and it's actually the exact opposite of the kind of sci-fi that I am very attracted to. I'm very attracted to, you know, our own world and just shifting our own world an inch to the left or the right, um, you know, without having to kind of create the shiny bright future that you find so often um, as the setting for a lot of uh, for a lot of sci-fi. And, you know, I love Minority Report. I think that there's some amazing themes in there and some great ideas in there. But I always try to keep things as grounded and as real and as relative to our current world as possible because that's where I feel like I have the most power to say something and comment and maybe insert my own views, whether they're large or subconscious. Understood, understood. Obviously, uh, I can draw the parallels between those two shows, but I do think that Let Them Die Like Lovers stands out on its own merit. And uh, the thing about it that I really appreciated, now this is just kind of, it's somewhat random, but not really. The way in which she's transported into uh, the different bodies, I think it's okay to say that because that's not really, like, no spoiler or anything. But, like, she gets into a bathtub and it it's almost like your dad's old school watch, like those little rungs that uh, are on the side of it. And like, so I guess I can't really d- do it justice in describing it. Maybe you can. But the point is, like, it is a very, 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 very simple thing in terms of set, you know, prop. But we believe that when, you know, your lead actress, uh, Angela Lewis, uh, when she gets into the bathtub and she touches those rungs, like she is able to jump into someone else's body. And so what I'm fascinated about is, you know, for you as a director, um, how, how do you bring us into that world and make us believe that something as simple as a bathtub and, you know, some metal rungs will transport, you know, this person into someone else's body? Because I think that, that the, the part about sci-fi that I, I love is that, you know, we have to, you know, suspend disbelief. And I think that it was executed excellently here. Oh, thanks. Um, so I am definitely of the school of thought that not everything has to be achieved in a visual effect. Um, I think that a lot of, you know, for a lot of directors, for a lot of executives um, as well, people looking to make and get behind these sci-fi films, you know, they're, they're kind of convinced that an audience needs these, these visual effects, these, and, you know, it's throw, throw a lot of money at it and, you know, put everything kind of like right in front of your face. And, and I think people are smarter than that. And I think that, for me, it's really about creating the overall experience. Um, and that's what creates a, the suspension of disbelief. Uh, it's, you know, it's the visual of, you know, first of all, let's start to let's talk about Angela, because Angela is an amazing actress. And Angela is the only person that came in um, for the role who was able to kind of capture this feeling of that this is amazing and that this is terrifying. And it's, and in the same moment, and in the same facial expression. So Angela does a lot of the work. Angela's face does a lot of the work. She, you can tell that she is, you know, bracing for something that we, that you and I don't really have the tools to comprehend every time she steps in that bathtub. Now, the other part of it is is numbing her body, 
cancer to, you know, to increase, um, let me take that back, numbing her body so that she could release from her own body and, and, you know, go into somebody else's body. So it's the ice that's poured over her and the sensation of that and the sound design of the ice being poured over her and the way that she breathes when the sound is poured over her. And then it's the sound design that, you know, my supervising sound editor, P.K. Hooker, brings to the table because I've worked with him on several projects and I just trust him so much that he's going to create this soundscape that's going to pull you in. And it's not about the sound of, it's really not about the sound of what happens when you leave this body. It's about the sounds that happen before that moment. It's about this, these creeping, pulsating tones of the machine winding up and starting up and getting up to its full speed. And then it's the lack of sound on the other side of that when you get into another body mm-hmm. and how different the sounds are from where they were in the cabin, these overwhelming sounds of the machine. And then usually the you know surreal amount of quiet of when you land, and in the film, you're landing in these, you know, you're landing in the middle of a field, you're landing, you know, under a bridge overpass, you're landing, you know, in a factory, and the soundscape does so much of the work, taking you from one place to another. And then the last thing is that the best special effect that has ever been invented is an edit. It's just a jump from one place to another. And Christopher (laughs) Nolan talks about this a lot when he's talking about Inception. You know, mm-hmm. the concept is so crazy. And of course, that movie gets full of the effects towards the end. But for a large part of the movie, you know, the concept is just carried out by one person being in one space and opening their eyes in a different space. And that's just the power of an, of an edit, of stopping one shot and starting another shot. So in visualizing this, I'm thinking about the entire experience. So Angela the sounds, the bathtub itself, the ice, the production design of the bathtub, you know, the way that that scene is lit versus where it's going to, you know, the, the cabin itself is very dark. Um, you know, it's, we shot in completely natural light. Actually, the whole film is shot with natural light. And, um, but, you know, the contrast between the colors and the shadows in the cabin and the spaces that she's going to. For me, it's the overall experience. There's not one single defining element my entire team brought their a-game to making that transition work and you know through acting production design cinematography sound design editing directing you know that's how you make a moment like that come together and i can't point to one single thing that is dominating over the other i love what you said because i feel like uh this is kind of like a master class in you know, creating a moment, create, you know, building uh, a scene and all that goes into it. Um, but it's those little details, like you said. One of my favorite uh, scenes in Silence of the Lambs is uh, right at the end when Clarice goes to uh, the house where the killer is. There's this juxtaposition of it's a parallel story being told. And uh, on one side, you have uh, it's silence as the FBI is about to, you know, um, storm this house and then over uh, on Clarice's end like downstairs where uh, what's his name uh, I forgot I forgot the killer's name but anyways he's downstairs he's got the music blasting um, the dog is barking 
And then, boom, right when the FBI, like, crashes in through the window, there's this switch in sound as well where once um, uh, the FBI goes in, they're loud, they're shouting. And then over on Clarice's end, we realize, like, oh, wait, she's with the killer. And it's so quiet that you can hear the birds chirping in the background. But I think it's those little attention, the attention to detail that makes a scene like that so powerful. And so uh, I definitely think you're right. That's one of the things that I was drawn to and let them die uh, like lovers. Um, And if you could, like last question, kind of before we go into, you know, getting your info so people can uh, find out more about the film, follow you, et cetera. I think your 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 core cast, um, just in terms of uh, Angela and Mustafa, they just they worked so well together. If you could just talk a little bit about your actors, and maybe if you did anything as a director in terms of helping them to get that chemistry. That's a great question. Um, you know, I do like to rehearse with my actors. Um, I really only had one afternoon with Angela and Mustafa. And there wasn't too much that I had to do to create the chemistry because they're both such professionals. Um, they both had a million questions for me, as they <laughs> should, especially in a film like this. But you know, our, a lot of our a lot of our work together was we didn't. You know, it's funny because in theater, when I did theater, you would really find everything in the rehearsal. And in this case, you know, we just went through the staging of some things in the rehearsal, but it wasn't really about, it wasn't really about their characters growing. That those, those things came together in two moments. First, in the insane amount of questions that Angela had, which by nature of the film, you know, she had to have those questions, but then she had, you know, about a hundred others because she's just a fantastic actress and knows exactly what she wants. Mm-hmm. And Mustafa, I know very, very well as a person off screen, and I know exactly what I can do to... I know exactly what he can bring without having to necessarily write something extra in the scene for him. Mm-hmm. I know what he's going to do, and I know a lot about his choices, and I know a lot of, about his thought process and how he internalizes things, because I've worked with him before, and we're also you know, close friends in real life. So, you know, I've known him for a while. So, um, you know, his process of understanding what he wanted to bring to the table is quite different from Angela's. And then, you know, I just kind of, we we laid out the scenes together, you know, just kind of how it's going to go down. Here's the staging. Here's what we're going to do when we get to set. And then they really found that relationship on set with each other. Um, You know, just by experimenting and trusting me and trusting that I would guide them, um, you know, if they took things too far in a certain direction. And, you know, it was just an intense level of trust um, that we had all built up, you know, leading to the shoot. But I don't know if there's anything that I can actually do to manufacture chemistry. I'm not, I would be curious to listen to a director who says that they did have to do that and what they actually did in order to do that. I'm not sure I know how to invent that. Um, I just know how to find people who are going to make me believe that. Yeah, I think I think it's definitely it depends on the director and the process because I know there's 
a lot of directors that will like send their actors on some kind of mission or you know they they do different things just to kind of like create the bond um and i i get what you're saying in terms of like chemistry is chemistry it's really it's really cool and interesting to kind of hear you know the backstory because for me just as a film lover and you know i really enjoyed your film for me it's just really cool to kind of to understand like specifically with let them die like lovers like you know what your process was what their process was because like you said that that natural uh chemistry uh, it just you know it's pervasive um within the film and it, and it really works well so again oh, thanks yeah i just want to also mention that you know like i i follow the lead of my actors very much and you know if mustafa or angela had said to me Hey, you know, we need to spend time together. You know, I need to spend with my spend time with my romantic opposite. You know, we would have created that environment, but um, you know, it didn't seem like either of them ever asked for that. And I think that comes from their territory of just being so pro and knowing that you know most of the people that they work with on set when they arrive on set, there's not really this prolonged you know period of rehearsal time. They just you know they just know that they need to process internally and bring everything to set and bring all their tools to set and just, you know, have that toolbox to work with the directors that they're working with on set because there really isn't so much of a rehearsal time anyway on most of the other projects that they're on. Yeah, totally makes sense. It's Picture Lock. I've been talking with the co-writer director of Let Them Die Like Lovers, Jesse Atlas. Jesse, man, I really appreciate your time and we really kind of dug in here. If you could, for the audience that's listening, um, how can they, you know, see the film, follow you on social media, etc.? Oh, sure. So on social media, I'm at jesse.atlas on Instagram. And you can visit www.autonomica.com. That's A-U-T-O-N-O-M-I-K-A.com. You can see the films on autonomica.com. And... Um, yeah, that's that's where you can find me. You can see actually there's a there's an, a previous film that I've made with Mustafa called Record Play that we took on the festival circuit a few years back. That's also available on Autonomica. So there's a few things to check out there. Co-writer director of Let Them Die Like Lovers, Jesse Atlas. Thanks for coming on Picture Lot. Of course. Great conversation. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode. I'd like to thank my guest, Jesse Atlas, for coming on the show. You heard a smaller, compressed version of the interview. If you want to hear the full interview, make sure you check out the podcast where I'm not constrained by the times of radio. You could do that by subscribing in iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Blueberry, wherever you catch your podcast. That way you can catch those unlocked versions of the show as well as the Picture Lock PR after show. If you're a fan of Alexa skills, just say, Alexa, play Picture Lock podcast and I'll come right up. Feel free to leave a five-star review of the show as well. By doing that, you're supporting the filmmakers I have on the show, allowing more people to be exposed to the podcast. It's quick, easy, and free, and I really appreciate it. You can find Picture Lock on most social media. All social media is at Picture Lock Show. Watch back episodes of the TV show at youtube.com slash show and subscribe. And if you're interested in being a guest on this show, you can fill out the form on the website. All music is done by Mike S. The Producer 13. Make sure you follow him on all things social media at Mike S. The Producer, numeral one, numeral three. 
and hit him up for your music production needs. Thanks, bro. I'm Kevin Sampson, and until next time, I hope you stay locked on film.